This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, yeah. Welcome everybody to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the longest running fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who will once again dig into what we got right and what we got wrong with our projections last year. I am your host, Elon Dubrowski, and with me, as always, the fantasy hockey robot, the poobah of prognostications, and the man who helped me come up with projections for all the players we're going to talk about a year ago, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. I'm so glad to have you all with us again for another episode where, yes, we look into all our projections from the almanac that we made, the audio almanac, going into the 2019-20 season and pick out the ones that, well, actually, we're going to start with a bunch of ones we got right because we spent last show just uh, tearing ourselves apart (laughs) for what we got wrong on players that we uh, underestimated. And now we're going to talk about players who we got just right and also a bunch who we overestimated. Elon, one player that you got just right, your Marcus Johansson of 2019-20, Zach Hyman. Congratulations. Boom. He's easy, right? He, you know he's not going to get on the power play. He, like, the best players to project are the ones who you know exactly what line they're going to be on. You know they're not going to get power play, because power play has a lot of variance, right? And some power plays run hot or cold. I feel like if it's just a, someone that you could just rely on for their even strength points, I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but a Zach Hyman, I wish everyone was Zach Hyman, and then we'd get our projections uh, more correct. Same with the Marcus Johansson, right? That's the reason why he was... Though Marcus Johansson now this year, actually, is kind of tricky to project, because is he going to be the top-line center You've on Minnesota? you got like 80 points because he plays with Fiala. Well, I don't know about 80, but I think he could have a career year. If he's a top-line center getting top-line minutes and top power play, and he's playing with Minnesota's best players, I think he'll probably have a career year. If he meets all those conditions, 60 points, I think, is still his ceiling. How about that? It would still be a career year. Yeah. Okay, so anyways, he's not as easy to project this year, like I'm saying, because who knows what line he's going to play on. Uh, But we've got some players now that we're going to dig into. Like you said, first, the ones we got right last year, and we'll try to discuss if we think we'll be able to project them correctly next year, or if we think they might be uh, trickier. Uh, So yeah, before we get to that, a couple quick uh, bits and bites, news and notes here about what's going on over at Keeping Carlson Headquarters. Uh, We've got our, Brian, our Discord server for the patrons. We've, like, upgraded that. Like, I think we've, like... Not perfected it, right? But we've tweaked it in a way which I think it's it's ready. So if you're a patron of Keeping Carlson and you sort of like checked out the Discord a while ago and thought this is too overwhelming for me, I would recommend checking it out again. We've got it like down to a science. I think you, you join. There's only a few rooms available. We have some instructions. You click a link. It opens up more rooms. You click another thing. It opens up more rooms. It's so cool. Thanks 
by the way, to Jeremy a lot for helping us set that up. Uh, so the Keep and Carlson patron community is on Discord. We're having a blast. And so, you know, this is a show with no paid advertisements. So why not uh, pay for our own advertisement by saying at the start that we would very much recommend and also uh, request that you consider becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson over at keepingcarlson.com slash patron. You join our Discord server and also... There's still time to sign up for the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, but that sign-up deadline is going to be approaching very soon. Uh, I guess we're not going to totally close it until we know officially when the season's going to start, but it could be, like, next week. So if you haven't signed up for the couple yet, and that actually, by the way, goes out to people who played last year and are patrons. You still have to sign up if you want to play. So, yeah. All the information, once again, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. That is a great website to visit, Elon. You know, another great website to visit is DauberHockey.com. Of course, Keeping Carlson is presented by Dauber Hockey, who right now is uh, selling their guide for the 2021 season, the the famous fantasy hockey guide from Dauber Hockey. And the thing about it is you buy it now, you're like, the season's not starting, training camp hasn't even opened, obviously, but the Dauber Hockey guide gets updated daily as things change leading up to puck drop for the 2021 season, which I assume we're going to get to at one point. So to see that and all the other great stuff that Dabra Hockey has to offer, including the daily ramblings, head on over to DabraHockey.com. Brian, you know, I was talking to a Dauber on Twitter, not to name drop here about how <laughs> cool I am that I know all these famous people. Apparently, he's been coming up with projections for like 25, 30 years, and he actually dug some up from the 90s, which is pretty cool. But yeah, so this is an expert projector, right? He's been doing it forever. But okay, yeah, DauberHockey.com, check out that guide. Brian, I'm ready to get the show started, as I know you're itching to do as well. So yeah, like we said, let's start with some players that we got right last year. And I want to start, actually, last show we started with Connor McDavid, who I proudly said we nailed exactly the 100 124 point pace we averaged him one of us had 123 one had 125 so right away we nailed it another big name guy that i'm proud to say we got correct is Sidney crosby who actually like kind of had a down year last year in some respects but overall i projected 95 points you projected 100 and he ended up with a 94 point pace so actually i was a little bit more right than you but regardless uh we nailed it but i think going into next year now it's interesting to think about crosby because on one hand, I feel like maybe next year will be a little more straightforward. You know, that Gensel injury was a bit of a bummer. Then Crosby also had an injury himself. And I feel like if he could play a full season with Gensel, also they've brought in some reinforcements, right? They have Jason Zucker, they have Kasperi Kapanen. So you think he's going to have a solid set of two wingers, especially if he gets Gensel and like one of Kapanen and Zucker. That's a lot better. I know, Brian, you love Dominic Simone, but I would hope that they've upgraded Simone into someone a little more established. And so, yeah, I kind of feel... Also, one thing, we had a question from one of our patrons, actually, Chris, was deciding on his uh, keepers and he was looking at Crosby versus Marner and it was a points league where plus minus was worth two points and the goals were six so plus minus it might be like super overvalued but you got to play with the cards you're dealt right and Crosby for the first time in his career was a minus guy last year so if your league counts plus minus and you're looking at Crosby's overall you know, production, I'm going to predict that he's not going to be a minus in plus minus again. I'm going to, you know, Brian, I'm just going to blame that on Matt Murray, to be honest. Like, Matt Murray stunk last year, and I, I, it's hard for me to believe that Crosby, like, became a worse player, and now he's, like, responsible for more goals being let in. I have a feeling that he probably played just the same, and there was some bad luck. So, all that to say, I expect Crosby to at least have an even plus minus, and I want to know, do you think that he's going to, once again, be around a 95-point pace guy? 
Okay, well, first I'll touch on that plus minus thing and say, actually, Elon, he was uh, not as good, or at least his on ice numbers weren't as good as they had been in the past in terms of scoring chances allowed uh, against him and his line mates per 60 minutes. He had a career high amount of scoring chances allowed per his rate stats. And you look at his high danger chances against, they're actually more in line with his career numbers, uh, but on the high end still of what we generally expect from Sidney Crosby. And if you want to blame Matt Murray, uh, Crosby had a 9.04 on ice save percentage this year, which is the lowest of his career, except for 2009-2010, when, like, you know, they were still the baby penguins and Marc-Andre Fleury was just there just getting hammered night in, night out, on the ice at least. Uh, That would seem to indicate that Matt Murray did have something to do with it, but it was not totally Matt Murray whose fault it was. Sidney Crosby's line and line mates also were somewhat uh, less responsible defensively than they have been in the past. But let's focus more on the offense because if your league counts plus minus, uh, great, that's cool. Like Elon said, you, you got to work with what, what what you're dealt. At the same time, try and change that. Like do us all a favor. Because we don't need to have plus minus discussions when we're talking about fantasy hockey and our lives will be better when that happens. So let's eradicate plus minus. Do your part. Uh, if we're <laughs> just looking at points and what Crosby can do, uh, the line, and I'll try and give a choice quote for my almanac analysis. Uh, the choice quote for Crosby that I'm bringing from the almanac to this episode is that he gets a high end finisher in Jake Gensel, more minutes, still on a killer power play, means great times for Sidney Crosby. And, uh, you know, a lot of that came true. Gensel, by the way, like Elon, you were mentioning, uh, it's so nice that he has Gensel and Zucker to play with. This puts the end to, you know, the era of Kunitzes and Hornquist and Sherry's and Dupuis and David Perrons, who were all there and like, aren't necessarily awful hockey players, or some are even good hockey players, but they were never the quality that Jake Kensel was, which is why uh, we can still feel good about what we look to expect from Sidney Crosby next year. Another thing we weren't sure about going into this past season was the Pittsburgh power play without Phil Kessel, but Crosby was not bothered at all by that. He pays for 34 power play points, which would have been a top three power play point total in his career, which is great. Because Crosby needed those power play points to make up for the fact that he dropped back down below 15 minutes at 5-on-5 after two seasons where he'd averaged nearly 60 and 30 seconds more than that per night, respectively. So that's one of the reasons I was excited about him and had him for 100 this year, thinking, okay, he's seen increased ice time for two seasons. He's just going to keep that ice time. He lost some of it, which is why... I think, Elon, he ended up closer to your 95-point projection than my 100-point projection. So looking ahead to next season, I'm looking at can we just expect the same thing from Crosby? Like, is it just safe to say, okay, 94 points, he'll do it again. And I actually found some red flags uh, for anyone hoping to expect the same from Crosby next year. I found two of them. The first one isn't huge. His 5-on-5 IPP was 90%, which like for anyone is insane, but for an elite scorer, it's reasonable to have their IPP be around 80, even 85%. So you might expect Crosby's IPP to still regress at least a little to something like 80%. Also, Crosby's expected goal rates took a real tumble after he posted one of his best markers ever in that metric in 1819. So he went from 0.85 expected goals per 60 to 0.64 expected goals per 60, which is like a sizable drop, right? Usually you don't want to see more than like a tenth 
of a shift in that number, but Crosby fell. What do I do? I hear you. I'm skeptical of no, expected no, have, goal. Okay. I just have a question for you, if you don't mind. I don't know if you have this information available to you, but any sense of like uh, how his numbers compared with Get- Gensel and after Gensel got injured? Because from what I recall, the season started, they were just blazing together. It was going great. And then Gensel got hurt. And then after that, obviously, Crosby had to make do without him. Sure. So these are his individual expected goals numbers. So one argument you can make is, well, Crosby in the past... Uh, has been just fine. Like he's put up a number above that in his independent individual expected goals without Gensel. Um, like he's always been sort of in the, I'm just going to cut the zero decimal and I'm just going to use the number after that. He's always been in like the 80 to 100 range, save for one or two seasons. So for him falling all the way down to 64 is, um, is bad. Even if you consider the fact that Gensel was out for a while, but we did see the penguins in like some distress and also even though this is an individual stat, of course, if the team around you is lapsing defensively, as was happening in Pittsburgh, uh, not just talking about goaltending, but the entire team, then that will probably affect um, the your ability to put the most dangerous shots on net that you're capable of doing. I also look to see if this drop in his expected goals rates was just because he was deferring more often to Gensel, like he was passing up those high-quality chances to pass them on to Gensel and um, their on ice expected goals together made up some of that difference for, for what Crosby lost. Maybe he was giving some of it to Gensel, but not all. So I don't know, Elon, if if you want to look at Crosby offering Gensel a few more chances, plus being without Gensel as an explanation, I think that might cover some of the difference, but I don't think it covers all of it. And also keep in mind, two red flags doesn't necessarily mean anything for Sidney freaking Crosby, who endlessly works on his game to improve weak points and come back stronger. But it's two more red flags than we've ever really seen before outside of that 2010-11 season where Crosby pays for 132 points, which of course gave him a little more room to regress and still be the highest end guy. When you're at 94 points and you regress, all of a sudden you're not even a 90 point guy. But I'm not meaning to sound the alarm here on Crosby. He put up a 94-point pace. Sure, he was a little less dangerous, and there was some potential variance that might come back to bite him this upcoming season. All I'm seeing from this is the numbers telling me not to expect 100 points again from Crosby this year. I'm not going to go that high for him. I'm sure Crosby would tell me otherwise. I still think he can definitely land around 95 points, only because that, that's the Sidney Crosby bonus I can give him after years and years of just proving that he can take it up a level when he needs to. Yeah, I definitely feel like I would be surprised at all for him to pace for 100 points again. I like his situation. Sure, you could bring up some reasons why last year maybe he, like, overperformed. Or you're not even saying that. You're saying that he, like, kind of decreased in his underlying metrics from the previous year. But that's not to say those numbers just can't increase next year. I think that there's yeah, probably... Exactly, yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, Things went wrong. And, like, it wasn't all... There was, like, one piece of variance. So, like, that was maybe a, a few extra points and he would have earned. But, again, if he's like finds the holes in his game, which we we know this is what he does in the offseason, right? Entering practices through the year, he finds the holes, he tries to close them, and he comes back a better player. Yeah, well, and also Pittsburgh has finally found the holes in their top six and plugged those. And now they have six capable players. So you would think that he won't have to carry anybody. You know, hopefully he'll be all good. I mean, I guess we don't know exactly how good Kasperi Kapanen is, but hopefully he's an upgrade, like I said. Uh, Okay, so that's Crosby. And I'm very excited to see the previous year, like you said, 104 point pace. The year before that, he was at 89. And then he bounced up to 104. So I don't see why he can't go down to 94 pace, then maybe get back to 100 again. It'll be fun to see what the Penguins do. Of course, the big question with Pittsburgh for me is also in 
Nets, right? Murray's gone, and Jari, who had a good start to the year, he kind of struggled near the end. Is he ready to take the mantles of starting goalie? But that's another conversation for another time that we've already had, actually, in our show with uh, William Nadeau. We t- dug into Tristan Jari. All right, let's go to the next player that we did pretty well projecting, uh, Elias Patterson on Vancouver. I actually was very close to getting my projection right on. I projected 85. You were lower at 82. And like halfway through the year, more than halfway, 42 games in, he had 44 points. He was exactly pacing for 85. Everything was going swimmingly, but then he actually did slow down a little bit at the end. Only 22 points in his final 26 games. And that all added up to an 80-point pace, which was a slight improvement over his rookie year where he paced for 76. And uh, yeah, so I say we were close enough. We said he was going to be around an 80 85 point guy and he was now going into next year i gotta imagine man the third year of his career he's you know no longer a little kid (laughs) he's now like 22 years old and i'm really excited to see what petterson can do next year hopefully brock besser has gotten over all of his injury issues and remember he had that back injury like back in his rookie year and some people have been saying besser's never really been the same Uh, but i hope now he's had a lot of time to recover and uh, yeah i'm super stoked for petterson next year and i'm curious to know if you would be projecting him for more than your 82 that you did last year based on what you saw yeah that's the question isn't it and i'm actually trying to talk myself into doing it here's why i'm not quite thinking it's automatic Uh, the choice almanac quote is that we mentioned how petterson became the seventh rookie in his rookie season uh, to play at least 60 games and pace for 76 points or more And the company he was in was pretty great, but only three of the other six guys uh, improved on that 76 or more point pace in their sophomore seasons. Those three guys were Crosby, Malkin, and Paul Stasny. How about that? He had a, everyone forgets how great he was offensively in Colorado at the start. Um, so my reasoning at the time was like, I don't think that step forward is guaranteed, but I'm very much on board in believing that Pedersen has got it in him. And sure enough, in his sophomore season, Pedersen did take that step forward and is now officially in the company of Crosby, Malkin, and Stasny as guys who started with an amazing rookie year and actually improved in their sophomore season. Though, if you look at Pedersen's underlying number, his sophomore season was nearly identical to his rookie season in every way, just incrementally better, thanks in part to the work that I think he put in on his shot. One other interesting piece to note about this group that Pedersen finds himself with is that none of Crosby, Malkin, or Stasny took another step forward in their third year in the league. Crosby took a huge step forward in his fourth year. Malkin was kind of up and down for a while. Stasny's situation changed entirely. So now, can Elias Pedersen come through with three straight years of growth, starting as high as he did as a rookie, if even like just a little, just another incremental jump? And where I'd come out with is, I believe in Elias Pedersen. I'd be a fool not to. He also has more room to grow than Sid and Gino, who were already up, up above 100 points by this point in their careers after their sophomore seasons. Those are also in a different era. So I guess if you adjust for points, it might be closer than it seems. But I still think uh, with his 80-ish point pace last season, there's room for Pedersen to still grow for a third consecutive year. I think the question is um, just... How much can he grow? Uh, which is the one you asked me. So I'm actually going to ask you, Elon, now that I've shared and said how hard I think it might be to add those extra points on, would you take the over <laughs> or under if I set it at a five point improvement 
for Elias t- Pettersson this year. I mean, I take the over. Also, when you say it's like going to be hard for him to do it and you gave reasons, your reasons are like telling me what Crosby and Malkin did a while ago. Like, yeah, it's been hard for rookies to do that. But I don't know if any of that really has anything to do with p- what Pettersson's going to do next year. Like, all I see is... I- actually, I'll throw one name at you that I think is a big reason why I'd expect Pettersson to get better. And that's Quinn Hughes, right? He was in a rookie season, was already so great. So I feel like Hughes should... Even if he doesn't get more points, like I feel he's going to mature and be a more helpful player. Like, JT Miller and Pettersson did so well together. I'm looking at the players around him are fantastic. Pedersen is like a beast and you watch his highlights. It's just amazing to watch. You you could tell, and he's like only going into his third year. So even whatever underlying numbers you were to throw at me, I was ready to bounce back and be like, yeah, he's going to get better just as a player. He doesn't need regression or anything like that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I would, I'm ready to call him a hundred point guy. Like maybe I'll sound dumb in a year or I'll sound a bit too excited, but we were having, actually having a conversation on our discord channel. Someone asked about Pedersen versus Barkov and pretty much everyone said Pedersen and I believe in the end, you also said Pedersen, but you were the one voice saying, I think you guys are underrating Barkov. Like, I think that Barkov actually has similar upside. And I just see, like, like differently. I think, like, Barkov, if he could get to 100 points, that would be awesome and, like, kind of unexpected. He's had, like, one really good year, and last year he fell down a little bit. But uh, Pedersen, I don't know, it just seems to me like this guy is a super, superstar, like an elite superstar. I could even see him challenging for the Art Ross one day. Now maybe I'm getting too crazy and excited. But I think 100-point pace next year wouldn't surprise me. But you don't, it, you're not even telling me to, like, agree to that like he pays for 80 last year and you're just asking me if i would take the over on 85 like yeah for sure. i get i guess so <laughs> okay uh, I like yeah him. and i'd be tempted to take the under not because i don't believe in Pedersen. i just want to know how fast when you start as high as you started like Pedersen has how fast can you grow uh, like that like without like one year at a time you know what i mean like i i think over one two three years he can work his way up through incremental improvements to get to that 100 point pace i don't that i'm ready to say that enough is going to change between now and between this past season and this next one that he's going to be able to add 20 points to his totals i love the point you made about quinn hughes we mentioned about how integral he was to jt miller's successful season last year uh, so we definitely respect and appreciate all that he does but i still just don't know like it, it's just a matter of how much room there really is to grow which i've said a few times and by the way don't poo poo barkov so much 96 points as a 23 year old was a point per game before that point per game after that so uh he's good I'm not saying he's not good, but yeah, he's generally a point per game guy, I think. And he's had that one outlier year. So it's hard for me to think of him as someone who at this point is going to still have a big jump, especially after losing Hoffman and, well, maybe Hoffman, I guess we still don't know where he's going to land, but and Dadanov. Like, I'm really worried about Florida next year. I think all the teams are going to be able to really focus on that top line next year. And I definitely am not. Like, I still love Barkov, don't get me wrong, but I would be nervous about him improving on last year's numbers as opposed to Pedersen, who I'm pretty confident he can. Yeah, well, we'll see. And as we pointed, as you pointed out, as someone pointed out in our Discord chat about this Barkov versus Pedersen question, uh, Barkov doesn't have Horvat on the second line to, you know, be that other guy to key in on or even just more offensive support in general on the power play. And I think that does work to Pedersen's benefit a lot to have such a fantastic 2C behind him, which uh, Barkov, like, doesn't even have, like, a 1RW at this point <laughs> or, like, a 2L. Like, you know, he has nothing. That's well, it. It's Barkov. Barkov and Huberdeau. 
Yeah, we were talking about Vetrano recently, right? Over yeah. in our community, and like very big, very long conversation. Like this it was is interesting. where we are in the off season. Huge well, conversation it, about Frank Vetrano. Well, to be fair, it's like the when you look at Florida now, Vetrano kind of looks like maybe the fourth best forward going to next year. Obviously, not counting like rookies potentially coming up and taking those jobs, like Owen Tippett or uh, the guy they drafted this past year, whose name is escaping me. Maybe, maybe you remember it, uh, but. I feel like, yeah, you look at Florida, you sort of have, you have Barkov and Huberdeau left, and then they traded for Patrick Hornfist, so you could see that potentially being a top line, or maybe Frank Vetrano gets there. All of a sudden, you see a spot on the power play for, like, a Hornfist and or a Vetrano, which is, like, good for them to maybe have a little extra upside, but, yeah, not especially exciting for someone like Barkov. And I think that you could actually play a fun game with your friends at the bar. Like, tell them, I'll bet you I can name a team that you can't name two centers on that team. And I think Florida would be a good one to bring up because they'd be like, I'll be able to, come on. And then you say Florida and they'll be like, um, and they'll have to remember that Alex Wenberg signed there after getting waived by Columbus, which I think a lot of people might have missed. Yeah, I think a lot of people might have missed because it was like Wenberg has turned himself into a very missable player. I'll say, anyway, uh, we're getting to after the other, <laughs> uh, the other competition you meant for Owen Tibbet was, uh, I'm guessing Gregory Denisenko. Yeah, Denisenko. Yes, of yeah. course. There's also Borgstrom. At some point, we were talking about Borgstrom. I guess he's sort of fallen off a little bit in what people are expecting from him. But now there's room. Like, he could be the second-line center next year if he's only competing with Wenberg and Nolachari or whoever is left over there. The Panthers uh, also have a prospect named Patrick Bajkov, I mean, whose name is, like, spelled like Barkov, but with a J instead of the R. <laughs> is this a prospect that we should care about, or are you just telling me random prospect names? I'm just telling you random prospect names. <laughs> he uh, he did pretty well with the Greenville Swamp Rabbits of the ECHL last year. Okay, so with that, uh, you could look at this fake Alex Barkov, who I already forgot his name, and I probably will never hear it again. Patrick. Patrick something. So let's now go to another player that we got right. Uh, the namesake of our show's good friend, William Carlson, who is someone that I'm very interested for next year. So first of all, looking at the numbers, he paced for 60 points last year, 46 points in 63 games, which is pretty solid. Like, we all remember that huge breakout he had when, you know, Vegas had their first year and he had like 40 goals and was basically a point per game guy. And we, this is like an old story at this point, how he had a super high shooting percentage and everyone predicted that it would go down and it didn't go down like that year. Like, Carlson somehow kept that miracle season going all the way through and even through the playoffs. But then uh, the following season, he fell down and now he's like a solid 60 point guy and it was a pretty easy projection, right? Both of us projected 58. We were basically exactly correct. The one thing that makes me interested in him potentially for next year is for Vegas on Vegas like forever it's been Marcia So Carlson Riley Smith as the you know quote unquote top line or like one line and then there's another unit but last year something changed like midway through and Carlson went and played with Pacioretty and Mark Stone who like with all respect to Marcia So and Smith I think Pacioretty and Stone are definitely upgrades on those guys especially if Pacioretty is as good as he was last year we discussed him actually on the last episode right and the great improvement that Pacioretty had that we didn't call unfortunately uh, so like I'm wondering if going into next year should we be thinking of William Carlson as someone who maybe could finally get back closer to what he did in that first season with Vegas instead of sticking around as a 60 point guy if we think he's going to stick as the center with again Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty as well as like on the power play with those guys oh yeah this is a tough one because we really don't know how the Golden Knights are going to deploy their sentiment and Cody Glass is also in the picture which like I don't know if that dulls the excitement of William Carlson potentially centering Stone and Pacioretty because Cody Glass could, unlikely, but could 
just be some internal competition for for William Carlson. So as exciting as it was to see him in that spot, we're already looking at a guy who might be able to bounce him from that spot uh, at some point or another. And I don't know when that point will be, but there's no doubt that William Carlson was fantastic playing with Pacioretty and Stone, picking up 12 points in 14 games with them. So way to go, William Carlson, for making that time count. Um, I'm not sure exactly how much I want to change my take on William Carlson altogether, though, even granted that there is this possibility of a different deployment. Um, Going back to our almanac, I mentioned that, you know, I thought 56 points was a pretty fair representation of Carlson's abilities in 1819. And I wasn't going to move far off that mark for 1920. And it worked only because maybe his time was limited with Pacioretty and Stone. But I just think Overall, it's going to be a wash, and he's going to end up in a similar place. Like, if anything, I'm open to giving Carlson a couple more points rather than taking away a couple. But all in all, I still expect him to be, like, flirting with the 60-point mark and not doing anything over and above that. Of course, if you remember going into uh, 1819, there was all that crazy talk about uh, how he'd been a 20% shooter, uh, pretty much a 40 goal scorer. And could he keep this up? Have they, has Vegas just unearthed a 40 goal scorer for free? The answer was obviously no. And we saw that one coming. But what I've seen from Carlson for the last two years makes me feel pretty comfortable that I know what kind of player he is given, uh, given no huge changes in deployment. Yeah, which is the big thing that changed. And then, like you said, there was a big change. So that's what makes him tricky. And yeah, there's obviously no way to predict. Like, it's not as if Cody Glass would, like, bump him. It could just be that they decide to put Carlson back on that line where he's also had success and then put Glass on this other line. I feel like, you know, it it might just be a chemistry thing and not necessarily them deciding Glass is better. So yeah, the patrons, by the way, in our patron projection project where we crowdsourced, uh, they had William Carlson... Right at 60, basically staying exactly the same. But the range, because we actually kept track of that too, uh, the lowest was 55 and the highest was 72. So definitely some people are excited and some people, I'm surprised, I guess 55 is not even that much lower. So yeah, it makes sense that the, his floor is like solid and safe because worst yeah. case he goes back to Marshall Smith, but there's that upside for a little more. So it makes him a little bit more tantalizing in your drafts. Yeah, exactly. So when you're picking guys who you think are going to be in the 55-ish point range, William Carlson would be the one to grab ahead of the rest, assuming uh, like you don't care much about the other stats that he doesn't necessarily put on the board for you. If you're just looking for goals and assists, uh, he would be one of the top end 55, maybe even 60 point guys you could grab because of that upside. The obvious question, by the way, that we haven't addressed is who did Carl, or maybe you did. If you did, I I didn't catch it. Who did Carlson play with in the playoffs? Uh, Did you? No, you were okay, here. Okay, great. So now I, I can feel clever for bringing it up. Uh, he played most of the time with Pacioretty and Mark Stone, and then uh, a little less with Marcia So and Smith. But his time was still generally pretty split between the two lines. Unfortunately, it wasn't such an even split that I can easily like pull out what he got with uh, with Stone and Pacioretty versus what he got with Smith and Marcia So. But he did really go cold towards the end of the run. So I'd be well, curious to see if I can find some of that game by game. I mean, business. to be fair, all of Vegas went cold because they went up against Thatcher Demko for a while and he just like closed the door. Right. And then who did and Vegas end up playing after that? Dallas. Yeah, yeah. that was anyway. Uh, I would be curious how he compared to like the rest of his team as opposed to just looking at his numbers. By the way, speaking of the rest of his team, I'm looking it's at true. the patron projections now. And uh, this is pretty wild. There's three Vegas guys that the patrons have on average 
right next to each other. Marcheseau, Smith, and Carlson are at 60.5, 60.3, and 60.1. So basically the Patriots have all three of them right at 60 points for next year. Do you want to guess, Brian, who do you think the Patriots have higher between Mark Stone and Max Pacioretty for point pace next year? Mark Stone. Okay, they've got Pacioretty at 70.4 to be exact, and they have Mark Stone at 76. So you're right, and probably the Patriots are right. Yay! <laughs> Uh, okay, so this is fun talking about things we got right. This is a lot easier than last week where we had to beat ourselves up. Uh, so let's keep it going with another guy who we totally nailed. Another guy that we pretty much expected to be around 60 points, and he was. And that's Logan Couture over on the Sharks. And unfortunately, he had an injury-shortened season. He only played 52 games. But in those 52 games, 39 points for a 62-point pace. I bring him up because he's been fall like i've been doing some slow drafts with the patrons having a blast uh, again that's something we do on our discord and you can join uh, keeping carlson.com slash patron uh, so we've been doing slow drafts and couture is like falling in these drafts and i remember it was just a couple of years ago that we were talking about couture so you know like i've always thought of couture basically since we started the podcast it's like this like high-end fantasy option takes a lot of shots he gets a really solid number of points he's great on the power play and I guess people are starting to think that maybe he's fallen to just being a 60-point guy. And that's, you know, last year, actually, I projected him for 65. You called 60. He ended up right in the middle at 62. So if you had to bet for next year... Oh, come year, on. That's, that's right. That's not right in the middle. What do you... T- well, we, you would, we didn't project uh, <laughs> decimals, so it was impossible to be right in the middle. But uh, don't be ridiculous, What Brian. I'm trying to say is it was closer to mine than to yours. Uh, very good. You know, I'm trying to just do a show about <laughs> us as a team here, and you're trying to make it an ops you thing. Ma- you, you started it with the Crosby thing. Uh, okay, I apologize, Brian. <laughs> I think you're you're great. Everyone just listen to Brian's projections and ignore mine. Anyways, point being, I want to I know... I like to listen to the show with Elon's voice muted. <laughs> so San Jose had a lot of injuries last year, right? Also, I feel like Eric Carlson still hasn't been as amazing as he like could be and how who how I think he might be at, like next year when he's at full health. Like uh, just some reasons that make me think Couture could still have another big season in him and I think he'd be a bit of a sleeper. Like I think we've already talked about Eric Carlson and how we think he might be able to do better, but no one's really talked about how Couture like I feel people people also talk about Timo Meyer and how he had that down year after that really great year and people are excited to see if Meyer can bounce back. And I just I feel like there's been a lack of Couture talk, so I wanted to have it here. Do you think Couture can still be that, like, 70-ish point guy that he's been in the past if, like, you know, everyone stays healthy and everything just goes back to normal on San Jose? They're not this, like, terrible tire fire team? So you say 70-ish point guy, and I take issue with that. That was like saying 62 is equidistant from 65 and 60. A 70-ish point guy paints a picture in my head of someone who's like, yeah, 70 points plus or minus, when for Couture... It's pretty much been minus his entire career. He's eclipsed the 70-point pace mark once in his career. And yes, it was recently. It was two seasons ago now. But every other season in his career, he has been like 67, 68 points tops. And I think that's still a fair place to expect him. The reason that he did top 71 points two seasons ago was in large part thanks to Joe Pavelski, who in 1819 scored on 16% of his shots at five on five, which helped pump Couture's five on five on ice shooting percentage above 10%, which for some players would be sustainable, but it's never really been a mark that Couture has been around, even with Pavelski in previous years as his long time-ish line mate. He needed Pavelski to go on this unsustainable shooting percentage terror uh, for him to get up and above that 70-point mark. Also, uh, Tomas Hurdle was another guy who scored unsustainably in 1819 and spent plenty of time on Logan Couture's wing, which is why I said in our almanac that I don't think 
uh, Couture is ready to get 71 points again and why I went as far down as 60, especially because, as I mentioned at the time, there's no one else available really on Couture's wing who's going to likely outperform expectations the way those guys did. Like, Meyer's going to be on one side. We knew that. That's great. Uh, and he didn't even meet expectations. But even if he does, I don't think the Sharks are necessarily deep enough to get Couture enough winger production to get him up and above 70 points. So uh, looking at what actually happened in 1920, I still feel very much the same way. His on-ice shooting percentage, as I predicted, dropped from 10.2% to 7.8%. His on-ice goals for and expected goals for rates were also amongst career lows. So he had a lot of trouble generating dangerous chances, not just him, but his line mates too, but his own individual expected goals for numbers were also very low for Couture. If it weren't for Couture having a five-on-five shooting percentage uh, that was up at 15%, the season could have actually been even worse than the 62-point pace that he still scrounged together. Keep in mind that Evander Kane, Patrick Marlowe, and Timo Meyer were Couture's most common line mates. And I don't know, I mean, of course, like, it'll be great to have Marlowe out of that picture, but I don't know that we have a ton more to look forward to from Couture if Kane and Meyer are still guys he plays often with. Um, he played often with them last season and didn't do a whole lot. I hope for a bounce back from a lot of San Jose. True. I've also gone on record as saying they still could be a bottom five team next year, especially because they haven't solved their goaltending issues. It's not so much about their offense. Um, but I am not ready to think that Couture is is going to jump out and surprise us. I've never thought that's the case. Uh, He did surprise us once in his career, but the rest of the time, over pretty much the better part of nine years, he's never really surprised us. So I'm betting on another unsurprising season from Logan Couture. Okay, that's fair. And I'm sure the patrons agree with you. I can go check that out while I do. So Brian, one player I brought up, you brought up how, oh, he played with Kane and uh, Meyer last year, and that's just going to be the same. And like, I feel like a lot of the patron projections have had Meyer bouncing back because he was, remember, a 70-point guy. And then last year, he fell all the way down to like 50-something. The patrons have him bouncing up to 62. Uh, Anyway, the main player I brought up, and I'd be curious to know, actually, like, what do you think Eric Carlson's going to do next year? Because he's the guy who I'm hoping to, like, I don't know if he can make up for that goalie tandem. (laughs) That might be too tough of a challenge even for the great ek65 but i do i don't know i just really believe in carlson brian maybe it's blinding me that i think he can help this team and help all these players do better by definition you and i keep carlson we believe in carlson's eternal ability to put his game together and just like nothing nothing looked good for him last year it just looked like an uncomfortable year we saw him lose another minute so when he moved from ottawa to san jose he lost two minutes of ice time because ottawa of course had him out as often as they could. This is at five on five. Between his first and second years in San Jose, he lost another minute of five on five ice time per game, which obviously doesn't help matters a whole lot. He also stopped shooting uh, quite as much as he had in his first year in San Jose. So like, it seems like the first year in San Jose didn't go exactly to plan. They tried to tweak things a little bit in the second year, and that still didn't go exactly to plan. So I wonder if they look back and see what worked for Carlson in Ottawa and say, okay, um, we're going to let you do this. Full health is yeah, what so worked in Ottawa. <laughs> there's two pieces here. There's the health piece, absolutely, which has always been sort of shrouded in mystery. And I've personally been in denial about it, thinking, okay, Carlson, uh, whatever ailment he's had, like, sure, you can say he's playing through something, but 
It's been a long time since we've seen him be seriously injured, and you have to think over time he can get back up to 100%, although the evidence is mounting that he'll never actually be the same skater he once was because of, you know, what happened to his Achilles and the injuries he's endured in his career. The other thing that really hurt Carlson and Brett Burns last year was just how thin and weak the forward core was in San Jose. Like, we overestimated the ability of Burns and Carlson to pretty much run the offense from the back end and forgot about the part where, you know, they need to make a stretch pass to somebody uh, as they exit the zone. I disagree. Okay. Like, last year, San Jose was ravaged. Like, they lost Couture. They lost Hurdle. Like, they lost And they their... gave away Pavelski. They lo- like... gave away. Lost. I should no, say lost. Well, but at least Pavelski they did on purpose, right? I'm saying, like, going into next year, I'm saying if they're a healthy team, that forward core looks a lot better. For sure. So, the, so I, we agree. This is what okay. I'm saying. That, that last year, we underestimated just how much they needed serviceable top six to work with. And that Burns and Carlson with garbage in front of them can't do it all. And you're right. The leading scorer on San Jose last year, Timo Meyer with 49 points in 70 games. That is weak. Followed by Evander Kane with 47 and 64. Then it was Burns and Carlson. Uh, Couture missed time. Hurdle missed time. LeBanc didn't turn out. Thornton was old. Uh, Marlowe was still playing big minutes for some reason. So yeah, we're hoping that this year, that healthy forward core of Meyer and Kane and Couture and Hurdle and maybe LeBanc takes a step forward. They can all get together and be what Burns and Carlson uh, need or can use to help put up points again. So I haven't given up on either guy, but I still am just like wary of the Sharks in general. Probably a little too wary, Elon, because injuries played a huge role, but they just never seemed to look dangerous. And uh, part of it is also, like if your goalie's letting in, you know, 10% of the the shots they face or more, if you're Martin Jones, uh, what are you going to do about it? Like, how do you ever feel comfortable breaking out of your zone and leading a rush? Yeah, I mean, to be fair, like, uh, it's not even that hot a take to be, like, wary, considering the Sharks were so bad last yeah. year. Like, you're basically saying that you're concerned it could happen again. But uh, anyway, we'll see. This was originally a talk about couture. I think there's upside <laughs> for potentially things to go better, but obviously a lot has to go right. Uh, uh, okay, let's do a couple defensemen now that we got right, and then maybe we could end the show with also some... We've got to get back to eating some crow, even though I feel like you're, you're trying to make me eat crow even for this section. This is supposed to be the feel-good section. We're supposed to make me... Uh, we're supposed to be feeling, I'm feeling good. feeling great. <laughs> yeah, because I project <laughs> Projected Couture for 65, and he landed at 62, and now oh you're trying God. to, like, throw shade at me for it. Oh, okay. my God. A uh, couple defensemen who are interesting, because we projected them, like, basically right on the nose, but also, like, I feel like there's no way anyone is going to be projecting them for the same amounts for next year, and those are young players, and I want to start with Rasmus Dahlin, who, uh, as expected, didn't get, like, 100 points, but he had an improvement on his rookie year, right? So in his rookie season, Dahlin came out, did very well, like, 44 points in 82 games. Doesn't sound like a lot, but, like, for an 18-year-old rookie defenseman, that's, like, extremely impressive. Then last year, as we expected, he jumped on the top power play for the whole time. I think he'd gotten on that top power play, like, halfway through his rookie year. We both expected that he was going to be around a 55. I said 55. You said 57. He landed right in the middle, pacing for 56 with uh, 40 points in 59 games. So right on the nose, which is an amazing second year. And again, he was 19. Like, Rasmus Stalin is only 20 years old. That's nothing. Like, some players don't even start their career until they're 20. So, like, Especially on defense. 
Especially on defense. Yeah, so, like, Darlene, even, like, forget, like, again, this is one of these guys where, like, I'm not even that interested in hearing about, like, underlying numbers unless you want to tell me he was good because anything he wasn't that great at, I assume, is going to get better because he's, like, no longer a teenager. Plus, Taylor Hall coming in, like, come, but this, this gets to, like, now I get a little bit of deja vu of always being excited about people coming into Buffalo and then somehow it not really working out. Uh, like, you know, last year we were excited about Jeff Skinner uh, and signing that contract and he wasn't able to repeat what he did, but I, and, like, but now, I mean, Eric Stahl's in for the second line. Like, you've got <laughs> Taylor freaking Holland. Hopefully, I'd expect on the top line. Like, I just feel like this team is getting better. The stronger players. Plus, Rasmus Dahlin is just going to get better because he's just a year older and has another year of experience under his belt. So, I feel like there's no way I can project him for 56 again. But honestly, I don't know how high I should go, right? Because I can't go to 100. Uh, like, you know, do I go to 70? That even feels high. But also, it kind of seems like what would make sense is a next step for this super high pedigree defenseman. So as he said, I'm not getting into underlying numbers here because there is still the hope for growth and everything looked fine and sound in his underlying numbers. We're going with trivia to try and project okay. Darlene for the next season. So Is this like your Pedersen talk where you're going to tell me about how like other <laughs> players who had certain similar numbers yeah, of points? that's okay. exactly what I'm going to do. <laughs> so, so listen, so this is going back to the Almanac, which was one of my favorite facts of the whole Almanac, was that in the entire history of the NHL, Darlene joined Bobby Orr and Phil Housley as the only 18-year-olds to ever score 40 points or more as defensemen. So way to go, Rasmus Darlene, for that. And his task going into 1920 was to become the first teenager in 36 years since Phil Housley in 83-84 to break the 50-point barrier. And as projected, he did that. So what's left for Rasmus Darlene? To what? be fair, technically he didn't because okay. of, but yeah, like he paced okay. for it. Yeah, I've been I've been using pace, like you know, I sort of say, okay, if they played about half the season with a pace that would have amounted to this number, then so, sure, of know. course, no, I know Capture. what you're saying. I don't want okay. someone to go and now tell their friends. I want to hear this cool fact about Darlene that he's the first player since <laughs> he's forever a to get point player. fifty yeah. point guys, and then someone will look it up and be like, no, he didn't. He only had forty points. And okay, so yeah, <laughs> that'd be a very annoying conversation to have. Uh, okay. So we saw what he did at 18, amazing. We set a bar for him to clear at 19. He did it. So what bar is are we going to ask him to clear at 20 years old? The bar we're going to ask him to clear is to become the first 20-year-old defenseman to break 60 points since Brian Leach did it in 1988-89, 32 years ago. Here's a fun fact, Elon. One uh, 20-year-old defenseman came one point short of breaking 60 points between Brian Leach and now. Can you mm-hmm. name him? Do you want to guess? Oh, my God. I don't know. Nick Lidstrom. <laughs> no, it was Drew Doughty. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Good for him. Anyway, so Darlene needs to break 60 points to to achieve the next milestone. The best season ever. If you want to, like, say, uh, as a 20-year-old, the best season ever by a 20-year-old defenseman was Paul Coffey with 89 points in 1981-82. That probably won't happen. But the next mark to beat is and you mentioned this number, Elon. So I, I, I think it's plausible. Was Brian Leach's seventy-one points? Uh, so that was in nineteen eighty-eight, eighty-nine, back with the Rangers. And to be honest, I think that's on the table for Rasmus Dahlin. I don't know if I'd say quite he can break Brian Leach's record. I think he can definitely break the sixty-point barrier, though, and threaten to uh, to at least look for long stretches of the season that he's a seventy-point defenseman. So you want to guess what the patrons projected him for on average? Uh, 
seven. No, actually, patients are lower on him than I expected. Uh, 62.8 is the average. The high mark is 70. So there's one person who thinks he's a Brian Leach caliber 20-year-old. Low mark is 53, which would be a little bit of a regression, which I guess anything is possible, obviously. But, like, all signs seem to point to me in, like, Buffalo being better and and, uh, Darlene being better. Okay, uh, Jeremy in the chat uh, says that Darlene will score at a 75-point pace this year. So Jeremy's called it. So who are we to disagree? Uh, well, we are the host of Keeping Carlson, but Jeremy's Jeremy. Jeremy's yeah. okay. <laughs> uh, that's his name here in the chat, by the way, for anyone who has no idea what we're talking about. Okay, uh, one more defenseman I promised I'd bring up. Another young guy that we nailed was Miro Haskinen. Uh, <laughs> that sounded bad when you it came out of my mouth. You need to stop saying, like, <laughs> I don't even want this on the show that I'm going to tell you to stop saying it, but you need to stop saying another young guy. Like, you keep saying nailed. I, I, I It's a it's a useful word. It's very suggestive. I apologize. I'm going to keep this in the show. Okay, so <laughs> Miro Haskinen. Uh, had himself his second year as well. So also just like Darlene, uh, he didn't do as well as Darlene. He had 35 points in 68 games. So that's a 42-point pace, which is right again, Brian. Oh, no. Okay, I'll just I'll get in front of this. You were more correct because you said 40 and I said 45 and he landed at 42. I'm going to say we, I'm going to say we averaged into the correct response, but I guess technically, no, the average was 0.5 off. Uh, but yeah. We got it correct. And then O'Haskinen, what we didn't project on any of our podcasts, that he was going to follow up that regular season with 26 points and 27 playoff games. So obviously Haskinen showed in a very small sample size that he has a lot more to give. But it's not like it's a big surprise because we knew he was going to be a high pedigree, high upside player when he came into the league. And I guess the big question mark was sort of can he usurp John Klingberg and take over on the top power play? Because that's a big part of getting up to being like a 50 plus point defenseman going to next year. I feel like we kind of still have that question, right? I think that it, they could like split time or maybe they'll go two defensemen on the top power play. Sometimes like, I don't think Haskinen's taken the job yet. It could happen, but like Klingberg showed in the playoffs also, he's still like really good. <laughs> and he's, and that's a good problem for Dallas to have, to have two really good offensive defensemen. But with Haskinen, I'm definitely ready to project him for more than a 42 point pace. But I'm at the same time not ready to start looking at him as like the guy that we saw in the playoffs over those first couple of rounds. So I'm curious to know where you're going to land on Haskinen for next year in year three. Yeah, I'm not expecting a huge jump. Like this isn't like a Darlene situation, although uh, Haskinen was also has been so impressive in his career so far. Like 40 points doesn't sound like much, especially in fantasy terms, but only eight defensemen had hit that within their first three seasons in the NHL since 2005-2006, and now nine, thanks to Miro Heiskanen. So way to go. And uh, more power play time on ice helped him join that club of defensemen uh, in their first three years to hit 40 points. He also saw 40 more seconds per night. And get this, with all the minutes Heiskanen plays, he pays for just 15 penalty minutes. That's one penalty minute less than last season. Uh, Heiskanen plays lots, he plays clean, and like he is super skilled as we all uh, thankfully gratefully got to watch through Dallas's long Stanley Cup run. That was probably the best part of Dallas going as far as they did is probably seeing uh, Hudobin be all he could be and then also seeing Haskinen really just emerge as a star uh, top end defenseman who could totally run the offense and be really solid on the back end too 
while playing incredibly clean. So good for him. Uh, I guess if you're looking for more points from him next year, you want to say, yeah, can he play more on the power play? But you already touched on this, Elon. In the playoffs, uh, Klingberg saw a 45% share of the Stars' power play minutes from the PP1 QB position. Haskinen saw 40% share. So Haskinen's still like the 1B in terms of power play quarterbacks if we're going by last year's deployment. I don't see much reason to think Dallas is going to tinker with that a whole lot. I also, and we'll talk about this a bunch uh, very shortly, don't think we're going to expect Dallas to score a ton more goals this year either. So I'm not ready to see Haskinen make the same offensive leap than the one we're hoping for from Rasmus Dahlin. Maybe another incremental step, like he was what, at 42 point pace. So maybe he can get up towards 45, but I'm not at all going to assume he's going to jump leaps and bounds. Oh, I don't know. I bet you a lot of people would project him for 50. Now I'm curious. It's nice to have, by the way, this is public information. KeepingCarlson.com slash PPP. We've published our patrons' projections because we're just generous people and we want to do that. And also, we didn't, you know, they're not ours, I guess, technically. Uh, But uh, so Haskinen uh, projected, yeah, for 51.2 from the patrons. I I, I was thinking also around 50 points. And I I feel like he's going to need more power play time than Klingberg to get there. Do you think that's going to happen? Like, that's the reason I'm not going 50. I mean, my main reason is I kind of think I'm going to disagree with what you said you're going to talk about next, which is that you think Dallas isn't going to score many more goals. Like, I feel like they scored so many fewer goals than we expected them to. And I feel like things can change. When Rick Bonus came in, well, I don't know. They were still going with that FCC line, the Faxa, Como, Cogliano, but they did score more goals in the playoffs. And I just feel like for this team to be successful, they need to try to open up the offense a little bit. And let's get into that. I, what, how could you? How could you say that? When they came within games of winning the Stanley Cup, yeah, playing the way they play. But no, how did they play in the playoffs? They didn't play that way. They were like going run and gun with Colorado, like actually matching them goal for goal. Yeah, I don't think over the course of a season. Like, I mean, I did you watch? You. I, yeah, like they yeah. seemed to me like they had another gear. But let's get into it because we're going to end this section of talking about the players we got right. Let's get into the players who made us look bad. And I've got so I don't know if people know this. I guess you wouldn't know this if you're not watching the live video. But I've been putting up pictures of the hockey cards of the players that we're talking about so that I can give you know let people watching the video get a sense. If you like, you know, stepped away for a second to go to the bathroom, you come back, you see who we're talking about. Uh, here's a so the people watching live. Here's the next group of players I want to talk about. Let me know what they all have in common. Uh, it's like all of Dallas, basically, because these are all guys who basically, if you were to go and like look at our projections and how we did overall and, you know, give like an average error rate, I feel like Dallas killed our error rate. Like, I think that team alone probably knocked us down a couple percentage points. Uh, so I'm just going to run through all the players we projected incorrectly. Joe Pavelski, we thought he would get between 68, I said 68, you said 65. He paced for 38 points. <laughs> Almost, like, half as much. Uh, Radulov, we both projected, I said 72. You went really wild with 77. Not really wild, but you know, like, I even thought I was being sort of conservative by keeping it down at 72. 46 point pace. Okay, Jamie Ben, we both had him in the 70s as well. 46 point pace. Even Tyler Sagan, who we both had as 85, 59 point pace. And that was like good compared to the rest of the team. Like Tyler Sagan looked like an offensive dynamo. Even John Klingberg, the other defenseman on the team, we both thought he can hit 60. Uh, you had 58. He paced for 45. So just every single player on this team disappointed us. We totally got them wrong. And yes, I guess sounds like you've already given your answer, that you think that what happened last year is representative of what's going to happen again next year. I just, I don't know, after watching the playoffs, maybe I'm being too like affected by that and also just being affected by like these names. Like This is like a star-studded team. I think... 
huh. that they should be able to do. I, I believe also in our beat writer interview with Sean Shapiro, I believe he was also saying, this is also just his opinion. He was saying he thinks that they should like, you know, change their style to score more yeah. goals. And like, it just makes sense. Like, I don't know. So I just think they're going to do better overall by a little bit. I'd be curious to know what your thoughts are, I guess, overall on the team, which I kind of, I guess you've kind of shared. And also if there's any like player in particular of these ones that I've named that we could be maybe a little bit more so excited about a bounce back because all these guys disappointed us. Okay, so first, just when we're talking about how many more goals would be reasonable for Dallas to score for the last two seasons, uh, this season, they paced for 213 goals for the season before that they had 210 goals for that was also offensively disappointing for for several players. Uh, Before that, when, you know, Tyler Sagan was still like a lock for your fantasy team. They scored 235 goals. The year before that, 223. So like, let's say they add another 25 goals and a player gets in on, say, let's be generous, 70% of them because they're on the top end of the team. Um, actually, that's a little too generous for the point I want to make because that, that would give them another 18 points, which I'm trying to say like shouldn't be a big deal. Um I don't know, Ivan. Yeah, it is. So you're right. If so, if someone can get on 60% of 25 more goals scored, uh, that would give them a 15-point bump on their numbers, which would make the difference between them being someone you want to generally let slide down your draft board and somebody you want to reach for and snap up before uh, somebody else does. It's just really hard, especially the way Dallas plays. So it's not just going to be about more goal scoring, Elon. It's going to be about the way they distribute the offense. Like if you look at what happened to every player that we would that we would have expected a strong offensive season from. Like first, let's just start with Joe Pavelski, who uh, paced for forty two goals in eighteen nineteen. Um, uh, that was his eighty two game pace at thirty four years old. And I went on for length in our almanac about how like I'm sorry. Everybody, like, don't jump on me, but I think Joe Pavelski's closer to the 25-goal mark. And then he ended up pacing for 17 goals this year. So there was one piece of why he didn't even get to that 25-goal mark, which I was, like, I thought that was a hot enough take. One reason he didn't get there, well, first his 5-on-5 shooting percentage swung too hard the other way. But the other reason was Pavelski's time on ice declined he lost two minutes of it per night, which we saw coming moving from San Jose to Dallas. But two minutes is a big loss. And he wasn't alone in seeing his deployment fall. Uh, Alex Radulov lost nearly two and a half minutes of time on ice per night at five on five, plus nearly 20% of the power play time on ice share he'd had in the prior season. Jamie Benn in 1920 lost 90 seconds of five on five time and a 10% share of power play time. Tyler Sagan lost 70 seconds a night at five on five plus a 15% share of power play time. Uh, I should point out here that Sagan is the only one of this whole group that had substantially, significantly bad variance, a career-low 5.5% shooting percentage at 5-on-5. So if everyone gets the exact same deployment they're going to get that they had this year, and they're going to get the exact same deployment next year, Sagan's the one who I still expect to be able to show more uh, on the score sheet. But if you're counting on more from Dallas, you're counting on these guys not being played like a totally flat top nine like Columbus does and saying, yeah, we have three uh, first lines, three second lines, three third lines. We sort of call them all the same thing and we give them all the same deployment. And it doesn't matter if you're Radulov or Tyler Sagan or Joe Pavelski or Jamie Benn. Uh, you are sharing minutes with guys like Faxa and Como and Cogliano. So 
uh, I'm not sure what to make of this. Like, it would be one change for Dallas to say, okay, we're going to go in a little more on offense, which, by the way, they were in the middle of the pack in terms of expected goals for per 60 minutes last season. So you can't even say that they were like an extremely, they were a good defensive team, but you can't say that they were defense first, second, and third. I would say that they were kind of a balanced look is what they were throwing out. So you can't just say you want them to tilt the scale to be to become a more offensive team. You have to say that they're going to do that by loading up their top guys with minutes. And that's the only way that Radulov, Ben, and Sagan, and Pavelski, by extension, are going to be able to reclaim their fantasy value of old. Although one really interesting point that I grabbed from your 31 Beats interview with Sean Shapiro was that Jamie Ben uh, gets like beaten up over the course of the season, and like the game he plays just doesn't hold up over 82 games, which we saw in the playoffs, right? Like in the play-ins, the, the whole summer games that the NHL had, uh, Jamie Ben looked like a different player. Uh, so I wonder if in a compressed season he can keep that up the whole time without, you know, going through those bouts of times where he's banked up and not playing up to his full capacity because of the physical game he plays. Um, so he's the one I'm still more concerned about. Sagan and Radulov, I would just love to see them get their minutes back. And Pavelski's still a bit of a wild card for me. I- I'd love to see him get 25 goals, but now I'm like, ah, I'd settle for 20. So uh, I can't remember what the initial question you asked here was. I guess it was about, (laughs) should Dallas add more offense to their game? Sure. I would just hope that that would also mean uh, that Radulov, Ben, and Sagan and Pavelski get a lot of the minutes and trust in turning that team to become a more offensively minded one, even though they're still like not, they're not not an offensively minded team as is, believe it or not. The thing with also from last year, by the way, is that Tyler Sagan was like, I think injured a little bit. Like that's what's come out. And I, especially after the playoffs, he's injured actually going to next year. Like I guess a big yeah. part of this is that Sagan's not going to be around for a big part of uh, the, the start. I guess we don't know when the season's starting, but assuming the season starts like in the middle of January, that's still going to be probably a couple months with no Sagan. We'll see. Maybe that's good news for, you know, when you're saying you want to see Pavelski and Radulov and Ben get more ice time, that's one way to get it is to have a star player missing and them having to make up for it. Though we do have Gurianov and hints coming up. So I mean, like I'm just I feel like I'm naming lots of players that should be fantasy relevant. So we'll see <laughs> what happens with this team. Uh I guess we'll see if we get them right. I guess we'll get them less wrong because we're gonna take a big drop next year in our projections. But uh maybe Yeah, hope- like I, I'm I'm not ready to put them back up where I had oh, them definitely going not. into this season. Are you? No, of course not. But I'd like to think they could all do better. Like, I'd like to have, you know, Pavelski at like a 50, 55 point pace as opposed to 40. I'd like to have Radulov like around like 60 instead of, yeah. In relative terms, like they had their 1920 projections and their 1920 actual performance. What's your 2021 projection closer to the projected, (laughs) uh, what we thought they would do in 1920 or what they actually did? Yes. Uh, I don't know. I just want to say right in the middle. Like, honestly, I think it, like I don't yeah. really have a leaning one way I think, I think that's right. It's a really boring answer, but that's how I feel, too. And Haskinen is... I, I like Haskinen a lot, and I think he could help things. So, And I like Gurianov a lot. So there's reason to be excited. Either way, this team... And like, Rupe Hintz didn't even break out the way we yeah. wanted him to, right? It's going like, to be a fun team for next year. They have pieces. They just have to decide to use them. Yeah. Okay, so next up, another team that killed us. So I said that Dallas was a big reason why our projections might not look so great. Uh, Not to not take responsibility, but I'm going to blame it a lot on Dallas. I'm also going to blame it a lot on Nashville. 
We got we got Nashville wrong. We thought Nashville was going to score goals. Maybe you're going to like again somehow t- like play some Jedi mind trick on me and conv- try to convince me that they actually did score goals, but uh, they did not. Right? And I could go through the names of a bunch of guys here. Let me grab my Nashville hockey cards. Uh, we've got uh, so let's see. Victor Arvidsson. We thought that he was going to be around a 65 point guy. I had 64. You had 68. Instead, get the. I didn't even. I don't even think people realize how bad Arvidsson was. He only had 28 points in 57 games. That's a 40 point pace, less than half point per game for Victor Arvidsson. So he stunk. Ryan Johansson, who like already, I feel like people have even forgotten that he even is a person to consider in fantasy because of how bad his season was. Like going into last year, again, like you were actually higher on Nashville than me because I had, I'm seeing here. I had Johansson for 61. You had him for 68. In the end, he made us both look bad. 36 points in 68 games for a 43-point pace. So even my conservative, quote-unquote, 61 projection, like, off by, like, 20 points. Uh, Matt Duchesne. Oh, my God, Matt Duchesne. What what happened? Brian, you, by the way... It's funny because on Discord, someone asked, like, will Matt Duchesne be good again next year? And then someone made a joke, like, was he even ever good? And I was so tempted to write, man, Brian's been drooling over Matt Duchesne for the past, like, three seasons, like, even Carlson. So I know he definitely thinks he's been good. I remember in Ottawa, like, you were always talking about how, like, oh, Matt Duchesne's, like, so amazing. Like, he's, he's such a great player. So I'm very curious to hear what you think about him after we both projected him for 67 points, which, by the way, was a decrease. We were accounting for him to maybe not do as well as he did in Ottawa. But he ended up uh, pacing for 52. So he even fell from that 42 points in 66 games on his first season of a long contract with Nashville. And then even Philip Forsberg, we both projected him for 75 to bounce back after a down year. But no, he had another down year, uh, 48 points in 63 games, which again, like Sagan, it's like, looks actually pretty good compared to the rest of the team, but still a disappointment. So once again, I got all these Nashville guys and I want to ask, is this a team that can bounce back from this and like get back to being a high scoring team and thus make like guys like Duchesne and Arvidsson and Johansson, like, and even Forsberg, like kind of draft steals because they're clearly going to fall in drafts next year. Or is this a team that you'd also kind of be wary of and just kind of say, you know, what they did last year is probably more representative of what to expect moving forward. I wish I knew Nashville is a team that confuses me more than Dallas. By the way, I'm not going to play any Jedi mind tricks on you, but just tell me, uh, where do you think Nashville ranked in five-on-five goals scored per 60 minutes? <laughs> so here's the thing with Nashville. Is they're like, kind of like Dallas, right? Like, they're a team where the defensemen are the ones getting all the points. And like, I feel like in, in fantasy, like with Dallas, you're picking probably Haskinen, especially with Sagan injured, you're picking Haskinen and Klingberg probably before any forward. Just similarly on Nashville, I think you're probably taking, well, for sure, Roman Yosi and probably even like Ryan Ellis above any of the four. Well, no, no, I guess Forsberg probably over Ryan Ellis. But you know what I'm saying? Like, like all that to say, I know that like Ellis and Roman Yosi had good seasons. So definitely there were some goals. I guess they just didn't go to the players we expected them to. Uh, so where did they... So what was the question? Like, where did they rank in the league? <laughs> where did they rank in the league? And yeah. I, I'm asking you in five-on-five goals scored per 60 minutes because that is generally, like, the best set of well, representative data. You mentioned earlier in the show that, like, power play can ebb and flow. Uh, I don't know. So what are you going to tell... The, the national I, I, power play was yeah. brutal. But at five-on-five, Elon... Tell me where you think they ranked. Well, yeah, I, as soon as you mentioned five on five, now I know that you're, it's going to be a higher number, right? You're going to say they were actually good at five on five, and it was just the power play that was terrible. So am I right? What are they, like a uh, top 15? Were they 15th overall? They ranked wow. seventh in the league in five on five goals. Who scored, scored all these goals? I guess Roman Yosi. But okay, if we add in power play and say all situations, uh, how many, where do you think Nashville ranked? Uh, fi- 16. Oh, wow. Bullseye. Hey. 
<laughs> okay, so yeah. The funny thing is, this is deja vu, right? Nashville had this god-awful power play that they tried so hard to fix through the second half of 2018-19. And I even talked in the Almanac, they hired some guy... I found his name in my notes. I think it was like Dan Lambert. And like, I don't remember anything about him, but I did talk about him as like their power play mastermind who was going to come in and fix the problem. Uh, he didn't. Nashville was still a very, very poor power play team. And that hurt a lot of these guys more than uh, they deserved to be hurt. So there is that piece. But if we're going to go by uh, like, a, let's talk about some individual players one at a time. Victor Arvidsson. Uh, just had a brutal, brutal season. And this was after I essentially said, yeah, Arvidsson's a 30-goal guy. And maybe one day he'll be a 40-goal guy uh, because I expected to for him to be in on that extra power play success in Nashville, which didn't happen. Uh, Arvidsson still pays for a career-high uh, six power play goals, uh, but had a lesser power play role at the same time. Also, weird, Arvidsson lost a lot of his penalty kill role. Uh, he had no shorthanded points after having three or more in the three years prior to this. Also, Arvidsson lost three minutes of time on ice per night in all situations. Also, Arvidsson's shot rates plummeted. He's been a consistent 250-shot guy in the past. Last year, he'd have, only, he'd have only paced for 180 shots. Even if you give him back some of the minutes he lost, Arvidsson still might have just barely passed 200 shots on goal for the season, which is a big step back for a guy whose breakout we called back in 2016-17 and who'd been a reliable 65-point, 250-shot guy ever since. Can Arvidsson get back to being that? I just feel like that's up to his coach. Uh, and the bad news is Arvidsson only lost deployment as the year went on. Like it started way up here as like a top line player, then became a second line player, then somehow became a third line player. Yeah. Uh, Hockey Viz, by the, by the way, is great at visualizing how a player's deployment changes over the course of the season. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hockey Viz. Phenomenal. Really good sight. Uh, I will say that uh, when you say it's up to the coach, like, let's let's uh, give Arvidsson some responsibility. Ch- it's up to him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he has to, like, improve. Uh, but I mean, I guess, isn't it also kind of up to Ryan Johansson? Because he's been his centerman for all of this time. And yeah. Johansson's been a solid, but- good offensive player. And last year, he totally disappeared. So for sure, someone else who, someone who it's up to for both Johansson and Arvidsson, though, is Philip Forsberg. Like, they yeah. were a trio. And Arvidsson was without Forsberg for the first time in a few years in 1920. And clearly, uh, what's been shown is that Ryan Johansson is not the straw that stirs Victor Arvidsson's drink. Uh, Cal Yarncroc was the stand-in for Forsberg and had some runs of relevance, but uh, could not fill Forsberg's skates for Arvidsson or Johansson. Um, Johansson, as hoping, would just be someone who gave us more of the same of what he did in 1819, which uh, he actually did for the time he spent on the ice, but his coaches did not. He lost 90 seconds of ice time at five on five per night. He also lost Forsberg. So very similar story to Arvidsson. He also lost, like Arvidsson, some of his power play role. But again, the power play still sucks. So it wouldn't have really mattered one way or another. Um, so same deal. It feels like Johansson Arvidsson we're just lost with Yarncroc as a third piece instead of Forsberg, and neither one could uh, could had a whole lot of power to do much about it. It's just very interesting. Like uh, Shane is saying here in the chat, Nashville are the most ho hum team in the NHL at the moment. Other than their fun demon, nothing special there. They have the- such a fun forward. Like they should be fun. Remember, yeah. like well, Grandland, they- <laughs> Duchesne, even Kyle Torres was like an interesting add to the mix. 
Yeah, well, I think Duchesne, like, that was a reason to be excited last year. I thought, like, Matt Duchesne's, a, like, a potential play-per-game player. He comes in, and like I said, totally, uh, you know, did, did not <laughs> return on the investment, at least for year one. There was even, remember that joke tweet that kind of went viral in the playoffs that he was going to be, like, someone trolled and tweeted saying that Duchesne has been announced as a healthy scratch for that last game oh, he yeah. played in the playoffs. And it was, belie- you got fooled. That's why you remember it. Because yeah. I believed it. Because it <laughs> <Yeah>. made sense. Because <laughs> he wasn't playing well. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And in the almanac for Duchesne, we said, uh, I like, I made my projection for 67 points based on second line top power play deployment with upside for more if he found himself with Forsberg and Arvidsson. And he ended up doing better than second line top power play deployment. He had first line top power play deployment, kind of top power play. Uh, he saw 50% of the team's power play time on ice, but was most often out with Philip Forsberg, which marked Nashville's stronger unit, which again, isn't saying much given how much the power play was brutal. Um, and then looking at what Duchesne actually got to do on the top line, he played with Forsberg and Granlin the most often, but he saw fewer minutes as he's ever seen at five on five at the same time. So it's very strange that he was playing on the team's top line, but still seeing less five on five ice time than he has before in his career. So it's kind of like Duchesne wound up in the right places, but not with the time that we would have expected him to see in those places, if that makes sense. Um, Like shades of Dallas here, right? Duchesne wasn't just losing minutes. Like the whole team was struggling. Everybody was losing minutes. It felt like Nashville had all these pieces that they just did not know exactly what to do with. The one piece that they should have known what to do with is Philip freaking Forsberg, who uh, we thought was going to break out to be, uh, to establish himself. Like he had already broken out in 1819. And we thought, okay, he's going to establish himself as a no doubt 70 plus point guy. I was bragging, I'm pretty sure on the Almanac or shortly after how I was picking him up in all my slow drafts because like, it was just so clear as day that Philip Forsberg was going to have a bounce back season and seemed to be available so cheap relatively. And that was a huge swing and a miss from me. It, it like, But it wasn't even a swing to think that Forsberg should be good. He was the one player who did okay on the power play, 18 power play points. I was still hoping for at least 20 from him, but it wasn't far off, not like the other guys. But also, um, Forsberg's five-on-five five scoring stayed pretty much exactly the same rate-wise. He only lost 40 seconds of ice time per night at five-on-five, five, so also didn't get the same hit to deployment as his teammates did. So I just think like he still had the power play points he still had the same deployment I think I just made a mistake last season banking on the 70 plus point Forsberg to exist when now if we look at his career history we see uh, his point totals his point paces over 82 games 63 64 58 78 64 62 uh so when you look at it that way that 78 point season is the huge outlier and he's had three seasons, four seasons where he's been between 62 and 64 points. I still feel like Forsberg is primed for a breakout, but not under these circumstances. And here's why I'm still saying Forsberg can still get up above 70 if he gets more time. Forsberg's points per 60 rates at five on five were in the top 50 in the league last year. Uh, that's Mitch Marner territory. And it's on the low end of what he's proven capable to. Like he's beaten his 1920 points per 60 rates. But Philip Forsberg's five on five ice time ranked him outside the top 100. Philip Forsberg was seeing equivalent ice time to guys like Charlie Coyle, 
Jordan Stahl, Travis Zajac, Nick Paul, Yul Armia, also guys like Chris Kreider, Kevin Hayes, Tevo Turvine, and Dadanov. So this isn't a total excuse, but like, I would love to see what Forsberg can do with those point rates, given more time on ice. He had as many points per 60 as Mitch Marner last year. What could Forsberg have done with the extra two minutes a night at five on five that Marner saw? So that's why I'm still holding out hope, or maybe I should rephrase that. I still believe that Philip Forsberg, at his heart, if he's deployed like a top line forward, is a 70, maybe even 75 plus point player. I just don't know if they're ever going to do that for him in Nashville. So until then, my expectations have to stay tempered as a guy who can get, you know, probably 65, but I'm not, I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not counting on him being a 70 point player the way I feel like I should rightfully be able to. The weird thing with Forsberg also, looking at his game log is very interesting. He started the year for anyone who like drafted him, think like agreeing with you that he's going to have that bounce back and have that breakout. They were loving you, Brian, like for the first like month of the season. Like he broke out. He had one, two, three, four, five points in six straight games to start the year, including a couple multi-point games. Then he missed sometimes. He had an injury. Then he comes back and again has points in like five straight games. All of these games, by the way, when you look at the shots on goal, you're going to like six. You have a nine. Nine, a seven, a five. Like he was crushing it in fantasy. And then after that, yeah, it kind of like slows down and he ends up at this like 60, what was it, 62 point pace that he ended the year at. Uh, so, which even goes to show how bad he was after that stretch, considering he was above point per game by a decent amount and then ended up with only a 62 point pace. Uh, so, like, we, it's clear that he has it in him, but yeah. yeah he has it in him, but Nashville doesn't want to let him show it. Like, and for a team. I mean, they were doing quite fine at five-on-five scoring, so I don't know if we should really bash them for it. Uh, It's just, like, lost fantasy relevance. Yeah. You love the players, and you hate the coaches. Like, in general, like, obviously, there's, like, exceptions. (laughs) You're always, like, saying it's, like, the coach's fault. Like, it's never the player's fault. This is is how we've identified guys like Arvidsson and Vrana and Bjorkstrand and Mantha. Yeah. Like, there are guys who are doing everything right but just not getting the minutes they deserve. And then finally, when they get those minutes, boom, everything's okay. Yeah. So yeah, I, th- I do. I don't like the coaches who are holding <laughs> the players back. Though I feel like all the players you just listed are guys that hadn't broken out yet. You know, it was like young players who like, it makes sense that they're not going to They never get... had the chance to break out. Exactly. And then they did. Until they got more minutes. Right. But Forsberg's different, right? He's already broken out and yeah. now he's like getting held back, I guess. So it's not as if the coach like doesn't know what he has in Philip Forsberg. I guess he still didn't like something he saw, but okay. Uh, we'll see next year. I've gotten him in a couple of my slow drafts. Maybe I'm reaching too much. I'm getting him like the fifth, sixth round. And I'm feeling like, wow, I'll take a Philip Forsberg who shoots a lot, has the potential for 70 points. But yeah, maybe like Shane is saying in the chat here, maybe, the, you know, it just if this happens in real life, I'll end up being disappointed. I'll think I got a steal and end up being disappointed. Also, if Nashville has like a, mo- a better power play, it's not unreasonable to think that Forsberg could just grab seven more points on the power play, which is all he'd need to get to 70 points. I think there are a lot of routes to 70 points for Philip Forsberg. I've just gotten pretty tired of Nashville shenanigans in how exactly they're they're running their top whatever, their top 12 <laughs> Okay, so Brian, what do we do with Roman Yossi then, by the way? I know I didn't have him planned for the show, but he had 65 points in 69 games for a 77-point pace. Like, it, it, in all this madness, Roman Yossi was like, w- one of the highest-pacing defensemen just outside of John Carlson. Uh, like, do you, could he still do that? Like, he got he got a, a lot of... 23 power play points. So it sounds like there, there were some... Like, there were power play points available. Yeah, they were all Yossi and Forsberg. 
Yeah. But actually, who was third in power play points on Nashville? Was it Ellis? I mean, I could look it up. I Maybe you could right look now. it up while I just talk quickly about Roman Yossi's numbers to say that, like, at five on five, uh, he can do it again. I actually liked, like, he actually, he set a career high in shot attempts per 60 minutes, which is fantastic. Uh, his high danger chances were way up uh, per 60 minutes, up about 25 decimal points. I still need to find the best way to frame decimal numbers on the show. If anyone has suggestions on how I can say it in a way that doesn't break people's brains as they're trying to process the information. Um, but yeah, everything else looks really sustainable for Yozi. It legit just looks like he stepped up his game at five on five. Maybe he was asked to take on a little more responsibility offensively, but he made every bit of it count. So uh, you're asking me what to do with Roman Yozi for next year? I don't think... It- anything yeah keep him as one of the top defensemen in fantasy (laughs) yeah exactly it's just weird yeah it's so you asked me uh, who else was like in the list of power play point leaders it's fascinating right because most teams a normal team you'll probably have like five players in the top five who are like the top (laughs) power play and maybe you'll have like a sixth guy who got in sometimes maybe you'll have here it's like okay so yozi had 23 points which by the way this is in 69 games right so he's pacing for like closer to 30 power play points then you have philip forsberg all the way down at 14 points then after that we have like uh between 11 points in nine points. I'm going to tell you five players in Duchesne, Turris, Ellis, Johansson, and Yarncroc. Then Arvidsson had eight. Craig Smith had seven. Mikhail Granlin had six. Uh, Matthias Ekholm had five. So, like, everyone was getting in, but not yeah, that you much. You have a top unit that's, like, you know, 15-plus points. And then your second unit, who's, you know, between five and ten points each. Yeah, so definitely a weird season last year. So we'll yeah. see. Next year, maybe uh, things change. Uh, who who do you like there? Okay, aside from Forsberg, who we still like as the top forward, of like the Arvidsson, Duchesne, you know, Johansson, is there any of them that you think can still be good? Like, I traded for Arvidsson in my Dynasty League, and I was excited about it. Uh, but it sounds like maybe you're thinking that he's lost that 30-goal touch that he had before? No, he's just shooting less and getting a lot less ice time. And right. that worries me a lot to see him lose as much of a role as he did. So I feel like Matt Duchesne is probably the guy who I'm highest on a rebound for. Like if Ryan Johansson and Victor Arvidsson stay together with not Philip Forsberg, I don't see things substantially improving for them, both in what they'll be able to do when they're on the ice and also how often they're out on the ice. I expect them to be at best on line two if that's the circumstance. And so I'd see Duchesne and Forsberg playing together. Both are good. Uh, I still believe in both players they just need more opportunity don't you think that uh it would be really great if they had kevin fiala that would be really good <laughs> and we were like we were uh, making fun of that trade saying that they were they got a steal in getting Granlin right for the fiala, fiala for Granlin trade yeah now Granlin doesn't even have a contract if anything minnesota should sign Granlin. by the way that's the only place Granlin has been good so i bet you Gr- Granlin should take a pay cut sign a one-year contract in minnesota because he's got some good Juju there, and then then maybe yeah, pull a Taylor Hall, try to get a better contract in a year. Because right now, Granlin's not going to get anything after this uh, boring season that he had. Okay. I like how you said Minnesota was the only place he's been good when it's the only other place he's played. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, he's, I don't know. I guess he was probably good in the minors. Also, he did get to the NHL somehow. Let's uh, do one more team. 
a couple more teams that uh, let us down. Just a couple players on this one. I want to go to Anaheim, who were really bad. So I guess there's a theme here. All the, te- you know, San Jose. Uh, now we're going to Anaheim. Though I guess like Dallas and Nashville actually still were pretty solid in the regular season. But Anaheim definitely was not. And I'm sure part of that has to do with their star players not coming through. Like we have Ricard Raquel, who you and I both still strongly believed in. I'll admit, I believed in him more than you did. I actually put him for 70 points, thought he could be a steal in drafts. You had him at 65. In the end, he was down at 53. So maybe not as wrong as some of these other guys, but definitely not not the guy. Like, a 53-point pace is, like, barely fantasy relevant. And yeah, Raquel still solid for shots. He, still, he wasn't as good, right? He's, he's good for hits. So he gives you that multi-category coverage. But I thought Raquel was, like... I, uh, it's not too long ago that I thought of him as like a stud for fantasy. And now last year he was like, man, like grab him late in a draft and maybe he'll do something for you. And then we have Ryan Getzlaff, who again, he's a guy kind of like, I, I was bringing up someone else before. Oh, like Johansson, where it's like, it's, he did so like, he was so disappointing last year that you kind of forget that it wasn't that long ago that we were projecting him for big numbers. Like I had him for 65, you had him for 65. Like we were expecting another big offensive season from Ryan Getzlaff. He ended up with only 42 points in 69 games. So a 50 point pace, a huge huge drop for Gaslaff. Like, he's always been the kind of guy where, like, overall, his actual numbers were low because he'd always get injured, but he'd be, like, a really good bet for, like, 70-plus points when he was playing. But last year just didn't work out. And going into next year, you know, like, Gaslaff's a year older. I like Raquel. Like, I think I like Raquel. Maybe tell me if I shouldn't like Raquel. But then, like, who else do they have? They've got their young guys. Or they've got their Sam Steele and their Troy Terry and their Max Comtois. And, like, you got to hope for the sake of this team, that these guys will come through. Then they have Henrik and Silverberg, who, like, just saw... Like, Henrik was actually, like, probably... Like, <laughs> he was solid. Like, I grabbed him as a free agent near the end of the cupful, and he was, like, really good for me. Like, he was someone I couldn't drop. Like, I probably streamed him in, expecting just to get a couple games, and I held on, because he was... The, the one reliable guy, which he shouldn't be. That shouldn't be his job. He should be the guy who you... He's like the Lars... He's supposed to be like the Lars Eller, right? You bring him in, you know, he'll do something, but he's not going to blow the roof off. But he was, like, more reliable than Ryan Getzlaff by the end, so... All that to say, what do you think about Anaheim? They can't be terrible forever, right? Is next year going to be the year where some of these guys start to bounce back? Maybe at least like a Ricard Raquel, who's still in the prime of his career, can be a really nice steal late, maybe get back closer to at least like 60 points after a 53-point pace season? Or do you think it's going to be another year of pain for anyone drafting Anaheim Ducks? And that's a great frame you gave me as being like how long until the Ducks can bounce back and Raquel still in his prime because that's both those reasons are exactly why I'm shy to proclaim Raquel as being a guy who's capable of 70 points. He's now 27 years old, which uh, is not in his prime. That's on the tail end of his prime, possibly exiting his prime. And he's on a team with another two or three years. When is the prime? So the prime, like at one point, the first aging curve that was really popular had the prime between 23 and 27 years old, but it's shifted to be potentially a year earlier, between 22 and 26 years old. Oh, so people have it. I thought it was like a year earlier, but I didn't know we were cutting them off at 26 and already expecting them to get worse. Like a lot of the stars in the league, I, I'd be interested so, to know, know like where that data came from. Might not even be get worse, but like, you know, there is a bit of a mountain, right? And on the yeah. other side, you might plateau for a bit. You might be able to hang around and not take huge losses. Like we're not talking fall off a cliff at the end of your prime, but we're just saying uh, by the time you're 27, for most hockey players, we can assume that we've seen your peak. And Raquel, like had a huge peak and we were really excited to see it continue partially because we thought that uh, he was a really highly efficient shooter. Uh, Raquel's all situation shooting percentages since coming into the league started at 90%, but then had seasons with 12, 19 and 15% shooting percentages, which were 
like fantastic and exciting. And that's why I'm like, okay, here's a 35 goal guy. But in the last two seasons, Raquel has shot between eight and nine percent. Uh, and now that means he's had as many seasons with high shooting percentage success as he has had seasons with lower shooting percentage success. So now I have a lot more time for the argument that Raquel actually isn't anything special as a shooter and that he had a couple years up and a couple years down and he's probably somewhere in the middle, which would make him average. I also went to see if Raquel's line mates might have hurt him last year. I don't think so. He played with Silverberg and then a mix of Henrik and Getzlaff, which should have been okay. His power play role dropped some. That hurt him. Uh, the Anaheim power play was also really bad, by the way. Uh, they were shooting uh, worse than 10% when Raquel was on the ice, which is like very, very bad for a power play. I see still, I still see enough from Raquel. Like, he's still himself. He still does the things that I like about him, aside from convert on more of his shots. But I still see enough there to still want to expect 60 points from Raquel next year. Though keep in mind, saying uh, if he plays with Getzlaff means a little less because Getzlaff himself is another year older. And I'll go back to saying Raquel is exiting his prime. He's on a team without a whole lot of pieces with which to work with. And by the time they get those pieces, he might be 30 years old. So I'm like, this could be... The first season, this will be, I'm just saying, this will be the first season in a long time where I don't find myself just making multiple buy low trade offers on Ricard Raquel, which thankfully I generally don't succeed on because uh, he has not come through even as a buy low asset in any of the last couple of years. And I don't think I'm going to expect him to do any differently this season. It's not to say he'll fall completely off the radar. I think he'll still improve over last season, but I would cap my expectations at about 60 points and even that might be a touch optimistic hey i mean what you're saying is exactly what the patrons think i'm seeing they project him on average for 57.2 points so better than last year but approaching 60 maybe won't get there i by the way i left off a big name trevor zgrass is going to be probably having his rookie year next year and a lot of people are really high on him so a lot could like if (laughs) we'll need a lot to go right it's possible that a lot of their young guys like click and that all of a sudden becomes a really nice forward core but like you said it's probably going to take a year or two for it really to come into place and by then raquel's like uh, approaching 30 uh by the way i also left out a name uh ellie tolvanen maybe he could be the savior for nashville but he's also a guy that like at one point we were excited about and now we're starting to lose faith as years go by and He's not impressing. Okay, so that's... Oh, hey, Brian, you did bring up how when we talked about how Kevin Shattenkirk signed with Anaheim, I believe you said that you thought this was good, uh, like a good signing by the Ducks, and I think you thought that he could like bump Fowler from the top power play. Could that maybe also... Can I take that a step further and say that maybe that'll help the power play be better, and that's a reason to expect more points from some Ducks because they'll have a better power play quarterback to improve that bad power play? Sure, yeah. Except I, I've also made the point that Ken Fowler wasn't a bad power play quarterback either. I think they oh, okay. just had a, like, it was a mix of being a bad team and having bad shooting percentage, like bad shooting luck. Um, one of those can hopefully fix itself next year, but I don't think the other will. So I'm still not counting on a huge bounty of power play points either. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, and obviously Kevin Shattenkirk also is not the Kevin Shattenkirk of like five years ago in St. Louis. Uh, okay, let's end the show with one more team. That I know especially bummed you out, Brian, because you you bet big on these guys. I think all three players I'm going to talk about are guys that you drafted for your couple team and probably a reason why you're going to have a second year in a row out of tier one. Unthinkable. Oh, that's and, so rude. 
Well, I, I'm saying, no, it's a compliment because you're so great. <laughs> it's like so unexpected. You were in tier one the whole time. You were the tier one ultimate champion. Yeah. You had one like uh, year where you stepped aside because I earned my way in. And we b- didn't both want to be there. And then like, I was shocked that you, you didn't make it back last year. But I think you could just blame it all on the Calgary Flames and specifically Goudreau, Monaghan, and Mark Giordano. Who, correct, am I right that you had all three of those guys drafted onto your Cupful team? Yeah, within, I think it was the first five rounds of the draft. Oof. Okay, and I guess I can tell you right now why, uh, because I, I have your projections <laughs> in front of me. You had Johnny Gaudreau uh, pacing for 100 points last year. I was conservative. I said 95. He ended up with 58 points in 70 games for a 68-point pace. So 30-point pace lower more than 38 point pace lower than what you projected sean monahan and again this is like they're they're together if one's gonna have it down here the other one's gonna have it down here so of course monahan who we both thought was gonna be you know just as good as the year before i had him for 82 you had him for 86 uh he ends up with 48 points in 70 games for a 56 point pace and then mark giordano oh my god i wonder we should go back and see like how highly you had him ranked when you drafted him in an early round uh but in terms of ranking defensemen we thought he was going to be one of the best because the year before he had like that 70 point year. We thought, okay, he probably won't do as well, but he'll still be good. It was like, by the way, it was more like 75, 76. Like he was in, insane in 2018, 19. We projected him for 65 and 68. He ended up with only 31 points in 60 games, a 42 point pace, still serviceable in the cupful. Like he has great peripherals. He wasn't like a waiver wire guy, but uh, like not a fifth round pick, like where you took him. Uh, so now going into next year. We've already kind of talked about Giordano and how Calgary now doesn't have Eric Gustafsson to like bump him from the top power play. I brought up that maybe like Valimaki can come in and like who knows what's going to happen there. So Giordano's maybe trickier to project just because we don't know if he's going to be the top power play defenseman or not. But like Gajon Monahan, like you'd think once again they're going to play together. They maybe they'll have Elias Lindholm with them. Maybe they'll swap Lindholm to play second line center and they'll have, I don't know, some other winger with them, Dylan Dubé or Manjapani or. Matthew Kachuk would be pretty nice. Uh, But either way, like at this point, was last year's Calgary production like an outlier? Or is that, do you think, more representative of what we need to be expecting next year? And I'll be curious to know as a follow-up how uh, you plan to have your draft strategy reflected in terms of are you going to once again have three Calgary Flames to start the season? Man, I thought I had it made. I was really pumped, especially because the prior year in Tier 1, uh, the uh, the eventual champion, Dave Benton, uh, had those flames on his roster. I think I traded for Monaghan towards the end of the season and it helped me. But like I remember just getting hammered by those guys, Monaghan, Giordano, and Gaudreau, every time I faced them. And I was like, okay, they're on my side now. They're going to do to everyone else what they did to me last year. And then uh, they actually did to me uh, (laughs) – they did the same thing to me two years in a row, which has destroyed my fantasy team. Uh, And I'm still trying to pick up the pieces and understand why it's been an emotional journey for me. It's not something I've enjoyed looking into. But the numbers that really stand out for Gaudreau Monaghan are that at 5-on-5, both their shooting percentages dropped 5%. And usually when you see that, it's like, okay, um, maybe that's variance, but – for it happening both to them at the same time, you're like, okay, but they play a lot together. Maybe there's something, maybe they're less dangerous. And then you look at what they did. Neither one dropped in how often they generated a shot on goal or a shot attempt or uh, how many expected goals they had per 60 minutes. And they were also still seeing plenty of time together and total. They were within 50 seconds of their five on five ice time uh, in 1920 uh, compared to what they had in 1819. 
But they both saw this drop in the number of high danger scoring chances per 60 minutes while they were on the ice. Um, Monaghan Gaudreau saw about three fewer chances that were high danger per 60 minutes when collectively they only accounted for a drop of just one high danger scoring chance per 60 minutes. So something was happening outside of what Monaghan and Gaudreau were doing or just something that doesn't totally show up in the numbers that I normally look at. And uh, I've actually leaned pretty heavily on this article from, uh, I don't know, I would hope that by now you've heard of Jay Fresh and you follow them on oh, Twitter. Yeah. yeah. So Jay Fresh has a sub stack. It's like a newsletter. And Jay Fresh posted an article called, Should the Flames Be Worried About Johnny Gaudreau? Uh, about a month ago, back at the start of November. And so he basically recapped a lot of what I already just did, except he also included data on their microstats. Now, microstats, for anyone who's not familiar, are um, numbers that aren't tracked officially by the NHL, but are tracked by a guy named Corey Schneider. And no, not the goalie, although Corey Schneider has enough time on the bench that he could be collecting microstats. But essentially, oh. these are numbers. Yeah, yeah, that was big. Um, the most I thought popular- you are supposed to be pro player, Brian. All of a sudden, you're throwing shade at Corey Schneider. <laughs> you know how much I love Corey <laughs> Schneider. Uh, both the data collector and the goalie Okay, Uh, but the whole point of this was microstat. So a microstat, for example, would be every time a player exits their zone with possession. uh, That's one example of a microstat that people track. Also zone entries with possession is another microstat. And also like the type of pass and shot assists. So Jay Fresh broke down all these uh, these microstats that he had available thanks to Corey Schneider's data set. And found, uh, I'm just going to quote straight from the article, Monaghan went from above average to mediocre across the board in terms of shot assists. Shot assists are uh, when you make a pass that leads to a shot. And Elias Lindholm's high danger passing contributions plummeted from the 65th percentile down to the 14th. Not only were Gaudreau's teammates not finishing their chances, they weren't creating as many as before for themselves or for others. So these these interesting little blips in microstats happened and I'm calling them blips because I'm hoping they're not permanent. Uh, you could tell by the way, if you're like, Oh, microstats, whatever, something was contributing to these three guys, uh, Gaudreau, Monaghan and Lindholm, not being able to control and take over the middle of the offensive zone, the way they did in 1819, um, you know, which is either a feature of their own struggles or other teams keying in on them better. All this to say there were some lapses that happened that I can't easily explain. I can't explain it away and say it was bad variance, but I also can't explain it away as something that they can't fix and that I, I don't expect them to fix. So uh, with the appropriate fixes and adjustments and maybe some of like some variance was at play, but not all of it. I I'm hoping things will regress back to normal. So where I am with Goudreau now uh, going into 1920, I was like, Century Club, 100 points, welcome Go- Johnny Gaudreau. Uh, I'm past that. Uh, I'm not going back there again. But I will put Johnny Gaudreau back comfortably at 80 points. I'll put Monaghan at 70. And I'm just gonna hold my breath and hope it turns out because I'm being very transparent here. I don't fully understand what happened. It was a really weird case. And I, I encourage everyone to check out Jay Fresh's article too, because he also says that like, there's no one way to really figure out what went wrong. We'll just have to see if they can fix the little things that went wrong for them next year. 
Interesting. Okay. And you can link to that in the show notes, by the way. So people will be able to find that Jay Fresh article. By the way, fun fact about the goalie, Corey Schneider. Uh, I was like, trying to, I knew that he got signed somewhere, but then turned out he didn't. I, I found it. So it was like Arthur Staple tweeted that Lou Lamorello says there's a good chance Corey Schneider joins the Isles organization, but I guess it's not official yet. So if anyone's tracking where Corey Schneider is going to end up. Uh, but yeah, as far as those uh, Flames guys, yeah. So I, the patrons agree with you, Brian. Like backed around 80 points for Goudreau, 70 points for Monaghan. That seems like a reasonable expectation for next year. And uh, we'll see. The, the tricky thing will be, let's say they blow our minds again, get back to the like you know hundred points and eighty plus points for the two of them. Then the following year, do we fear that they regress again, or do we once again welcome them with open arms? And we'll have to see. Uh, Calgary's going to be interesting, yeah. right? I think I've basically just adjusted my ceiling for them and thinking that what they showed in eighteen nineteen they could build upon. Maybe that's just going to be like the crest, the peak of their potential, even though they still have prime years remaining. That might have just been everything falling into place perfectly, and we can't expect that to happen again. Right. And then for Giordano, assuming that we, there's probably, I, I expect, tell me if this is controversial. It's probably not. It's probably the, the fairest way to go. I expect he'll be on the top power play for a bit. I don't think he's going to be on the top power play for the full season. So let's just put him at like, let's say 40 to 50% of the top power play time next year. Where would that leave you for points? Do you think he's once again going to be closer to this 40 point defenseman? Or do you think he still has an upside to at least be like, you know, forget about 70 plus like a couple years ago, but is he like a 50 point guy again? Or should we just accept that as like a 37 year old now, Mark Giordano's like, you know, probably a 40 point guy that's going to give you great peripherals. I remember the year he got 70 points. I said he'd get 50 points, and that sounded like a hot take at the time. Um, so I'm not sure where to, like, again, the Flames The flames broke my brain this year. They broke my brain and they broke my heart. And I know there's, like, all these unconscious biases at play, uh, but you just want an answer. Giordano, I'll put him, like, just south of 50 points next season, mm-hmm. and I don't have a lot of ways to explain why. That's fair. Yeah, the patrons were also like all over the place. The lowest is 33, the highest is 58, and then it averages out to 43.7 for all of the I, uh, 18 Giordano projections I, that came in. I do take a little issue with it being like automatic that he's not going to be the top quarterback all season long, but we've I, had this discussion before. I mean, generally the way I see it is he's lost the job and he's like 37. So it's hard to it's hard for me to imagine that now he like gets it back when he's but already he'd lost, lost it. the job and was 35. Oh, you mean back when he lost it to Dougie Hamilton? When he got that when he came back with that 70 point season, right. he'd lost the job and was 35. So yeah. now he's lost the job and is 37. Yes, you're right. It's, uh, maybe he gets it next year. That would be great for him. Uh, like this Valimaki character did well overseas. It's not a guarantee that he's going to jump in and be the top power play quarterback. They also have Rasmus Anderson. Like they have other names they could give a shot, uh, you know, and leave Giordano on the second power play. Like, I don't know. I'm, I'm going into the next season, assuming 50, 50. I think the patrons are agreeing. They, cause they don't have him, like I said, as high as even you, they have him down at 43 points. I think the patrons are also kind of assuming that he's not going to be like a high end, uh, your top power play quarterback but it's, it, we can't predict it because we don't know it's a lot of it depends on like how a rookie does and like if valimaki's great that's great if he can't handle the job then maybe they just have to fall back to giordano uh but okay speaking of people being great or not great i'm gonna land on saying that i think this show was pretty great Brian, or at least i had a really good time talking to you through all of these uh, things we got right and some things we got wrong and you know i think the main thing is that we all learn and the even more important thing is that we have fun along the way and i think that we did and we're slowly 
you know, approaching the season. Though <laughs> I don't know, like we might be walking on a treadmill, and like every single week we're going to be talking about the season starting soon, but it keeps on being pushed back a week or two. Because I think we were talking about January first a couple weeks ago, and now we're looking at a potential January fifteenth. But either way, we're just going to keep coming back at you with more content about fantasy hockey, trying to figure out what's going to happen next year. And yeah, we have a lot in the hopper. So thanks everyone for listening. I will mention that if you're listening to the show for the first time or something, subscribe, right? Like on your device, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I don't know, wherever you're listening to the podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe, sign in, because we're going to be back with you every week once the season starts. That's our bread and butter for Keeping Carlson. Every single week, we're going to be talking about, you know, who's done well that week, who hasn't done well, who you should add, who you should consider dropping. Plus, we have short shifts episodes by Ben and Lewis throughout the week for like little short shows about, you know, if you don't want to wait till the Sunday. So why not? It's free, by the way. This is a free podcast. I don't know if people realize that. We, we do all this work, Brian, for free. What are we thinking? How could okay. they not realize it? <laughs> Maybe they think we're getting paid by Spotify. Man, I, I thought I paid $10 somewhere to, to access this. <laughs> Maybe just, I just feel like you should, people should be, I'm excited. Like, not for us, but like, you know, all these podcasts I listen to are amazing and they're free. But of course, you do have the option to support a podcast that you're listening to if you feel like they're giving you value. And so I will throw out, once again, keepingcarlson.com slash patron for just $5 a month. We feel like that would be like just a really nice way for you to show your support. And also we do like, we give our soul, you know, we give everything we can to try to make it worth your while to give us that pledge, including joining our Discord server, uh, patron cast branch, I guess we'll do a week from Wednesday. It's time, it keeps coming. These patron casts. Uh, but I guess, yeah, time flies. Uh, so we have that. We have our Keeping Carlson Ultra Patron Fantasy League, which is still not too late. Every patron that signs up can just register for the couple and you're guaranteed a spot. You start in the bottom tier. If you do well, you're going to climb your way up. Before you know it, you're going to be facing Brian in tier two, or maybe by then he'll be back in tier one, depending on how the Flames do next year. Uh, so with that, though, I guess I'll stop plugging things. Though we do have Twitter, by the way, at Keeping Carlson. We'd love to hear from you. Let, let us know what you thought about the show. Patrons, by the way, let us know what you thought of the show in the Discord. But okay, let's cue the outro music. I guess it sounds weird because the music is actually playing now. But I don't hear it because I haven't done it yet because I haven't edited the show. So now the music's playing. So I- Stop the music! Stop the music! Cue the outro music! Brian, go ahead and read the credits. All right. This episode of the Keeman Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dabra Hockey and powered by our patrons. Logo art by Brandon Weeb. Outro music by Pat Roach. This episode was researched with help from Dabra Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dabra Prospects, Natural Statric, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, and Hockey Database. Great job, as always, Brian. Thanks to everyone who joined us live. By the way, you can join us live every week at keepingcarls.com slash live. We go 7.45 p.m. Eastern time every Sunday. Uh, but yeah, Brian, looking forward to doing this all again next week. I guess we haven't decided yet. Maybe we'll talk about some more projections we got wrong, or maybe we'll come up with something else. We will come up with something. Don't you worry. Yeah. Listener slash Elon. Elon will come up with it. He'll tell me. I mean, no, I'll propose it. And then you'll, I'll be like, what do you think of this? And then I'll you'll be like, cool, that's great. Yeah, I, Sure, but like, feel free to tell me if you don't like the idea. Of course. Listeners, by the way, you can throw us an idea if you want. Like, if yeah. you tweeted us, why don't you guys do a show about this? Maybe we'll do it. Nothing's set in stone right now. That's the bonus you get for listening all the way till now. <laughs> okay, so Brian, do your catchphrase. Let's get out of here. Uh, fantasy hockey? It's for everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.